I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Karen Holmes from Atlanta. She's a much-published poet who hosts an event called the Side Door Poets in Atlanta, as well as an open mic in the Blue Ridge Mountains. In her working life, she's a freelance business writer. We're here with her because she has a book called Untying the Knot, a collection of poems about relationships and particularly divorce. That'll be followed by a review of The Poetry and Politics of Ellen Ginsberg by Elliot Katz. It's the first full-length book to take a close and critical look at those aspects of Ellen Ginsberg's life. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Today I'm talking with Karen Paul Holmes from Atlanta. She is the author of a poetry collection entitled Untying the Knot. And we're going to hear about that collection today and hear some of the poems. So, Karen, I'm so glad you could be here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, too. Now, Untying the Knot is about what it seems to be about, as I understand it from the poems you sent me. So it's about um, you and your husband splitting. And I suppose the question it comes to me is, where in the process did you decide to go all the way to writing a book? That kind of thing inspires a poem or maybe a few or more, but uh, you have a whole book. How, that, how did that happen? Well, from the moment that he told me he was in love with someone else, pretty much the mind, you know, when you go into a sudden traumatic situation, you're obsessed with it, and um, and writing, I guess, is my way of coping. So I was doing a lot of writing, either actual poems or just jotting things into a notebook yeah. and turning them into poems, usually later, if they seemed poem-worthy. And um, after probably more than a year, I was talking to another poet friend who was saying, well, you know, publishers these days like a book to have a theme, and I thought, man, do I have a theme? <laughs> and I looked back, and I probably had 60 or 80 poems on my computer. And I started playing around with order and, you know, which ones I might keep and which ones I might throw out. And, and that turned into my poetry collection eventually. <laughs> okay. Wow, that's a lot. But it makes sense. It all makes sense. Yeah. So uh, do you have one that either especially grabs you or other people really like or that's perplexing or whatever criterion you want. Okay, well, I thought I'd start out with the title poem from the book. And this is one of those, uh, you know how with a poem, um, some random idea pops into your head where you, you start um, thinking about something and then it just evolves into a poem. I was walking my dogs, but the dog's leashes were all knotted up, you know, before I put them on the dogs. And I started thinking, how do knots just form by themselves and things. And so that turned into a poem. Um, and in researching this poem, too, I also discovered a term, um, we've all heard the term bitter end. And uh, what I found interesting, and maybe you know this, but I didn't, is that the bitter end is also defined as the loose end of a rope. So I thought, okay, that all works for my poem. <laughs> Untying the knot. Why do knots form by themselves? In my blow dryer cord, cell phone charger, dog leashes, 
What Boy Scout crept into the dark to practice right over left, around and through? And what of the sheep shank of worry in my stomach, muscles tied tense with monkey's fists, hair tangled in little nooses, the twists and hitches in our relationship? Who caused those? Should I have jumped through one more hoop to tighten our ties, looped my love around you one more time? Like a rope, our marriage failed at the stress of the knot and frayed at the bitter end. You made good use of that bitter end there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always wonder about telephone cords, the ones that are hooked to the wall. Yeah. I don't understand it. You pick it up, you put it down, and it ties itself. So do relationships tie themselves? You bring up a really interesting point there. Yeah. Beyond our consciousness, it just happens. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure some, some of it does anyway. We all know that, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. now, how long ago did this happen, by the way? The, and well, the, the, uh, the first separation happened in um, just about a exactly a year i mean uh exactly six years ago because because it was in march and it was i remember that because it was right before my birthday that's in april and it was in 2010. Hmm. and then the whole thing took a while you know for everything to work out before the divorce actually happened to finish the untying yeah mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and to write the poems and to get them published and all that so that <laughs> yeah. it had to be a, more than just wasn't last year it's been a while <laughs> right. Well, how about, how about, you know, I thought the photo of, of my ex was really interesting because okay. it, it, it brings, it's the kind of thing that brings up details that make you know it's real. Uh, uh, I, I hear yeah. things, in, you know, I hear things in poems and you say, no, you wouldn't make that up. You just, it, you just wouldn't think to make that up. Exactly. So it really happened. Or in, story, in, in novels too, you know, I think uh, that person had that experience and gave it to the character because it's just too real. And yeah. I think this, this was a great angle on it. I mean, looking at a photo of my ex on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Good old internet doesn't hide anything these days. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Photos of my ex on the internet. Sometimes I can't resist spying on my ex's girlfriend by visiting her blog. There she is doing yoga poses. I see her zero-scaped garden, orchids in her studio, where we used to sit and gossip. When she posted a photo of him, the caption, my little family, coiled my gut. Could he just switch families after 30 years with me, our daughter, our dogs? But there is his hurry-take-the-photo smile, more wrinkles than I remember in the shirt I bought her sad-faced, red-eyed dog that he always disliked sits on his lap. She stands over him, hands on both his shoulders. A few months later, I discover her family reunion. He's small in the back row of 14 people on a beach, but I recognize his posture before I blow up the photo. Wind-tossing hair, he looks happier, perhaps heavier, Jaw tucked back from the camera makes a double chin. His hands on the top of her wicker chair. There's a gap between her head, his chest. 
Her half smile looks like resignation. Or maybe it's peace. Or maybe a nanosecond nothing as the shutter clicked. She wears yoga pants under her sundress, though others have on shorts, t-shirts. Probably she performed poses on the beach. Typical of her partly spiritual, partly show-offy. I hope she's gained weight, especially in her arms, but it might be the angle. She always claimed to be estranged from her family. Have they accepted her now that she has a nice, normal boyfriend, finally divorced? It seems like I hate her, doesn't it? Let's just say I believe she's disappointed, which makes me smirk a bit. I'd like to be a knot on her wood-paneled wall to study how they get along. I peer into the photos, looking, so I can say, I told you so. But no, I'd like him to be happy, with a half pinch of regret. Here's one from Christmas. They're down-wrapped on a cruise ship deck, Antarctica's white stretching behind them. She loves penguins. And though he never could take the cold, he stands there beside her, his smile frozen. The poem has so many, as, as I said, so many good details. Uh, Thank you. It, it, was, was this, I would, my guess would be, this is not a poem that just falls out onto the page because it has so many different things. Uh, You'd have to work it a while. Did it take a while to write this one? Right, yeah, yeah. I'm a kind of a consummate editor of my poems anyway, so most of the poems went through a lot of revisions. But this one I do specifically remember taking it to a workshop. And, uh, you know, there's a few places in it where I recognize where um, people recommended I change something, and, you know, and it, and it turned out better, of course, because I got some good input on it. And Anyway, so yeah, it, it got worked quite a bit. And all that detail, you know, deciding what detail to put in and when it's sort of a list poem in some ways, you have to decide what are the most important things on the list and right. get rid of some of the others, so. Well, I think the thing is that it, there aren't too many different photos, really. Mm -hmm. It's like it's a long list of 20 different, you know, he's doing this, he's doing that, but it, you elaborate on each one. And and again, just the little things there and, and uh, the way it goes through your moods and attitudes uh, while looking at the photos, I, I personally appreciate also. It, seems <laughs> it makes it seem really real. Well, I know when I read it in public, I um, you know, I, people do laugh in the right places. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. So you know, that's always good when you've got some humor in a poem. You hope people are going to laugh. <laughs> right. Right. Now, you mentioned workshop, and then I'd ask you before we started recording. Uh, you, you have some very, very nice words about your book from Darian Lux, and you say you took a workshop with with her. Uh, did you recall any special words of wisdom from her you'd like to pass on in terms of uh, what she pushed to people about how to write poems? Yes, I would say um, one thing that really sticks with me was, um, and this, you know, this isn't just Dorian. Um, other mm -hmm. poets will tell you the same thing, but um, I guess it was the way she emphasized it and the um, examples she used or places in my poems where she showed me how this would be effective is to end the poem on an image. So, uh, mm -hmm. like, for example, that poem I just read, it ends with this image of them cold on the deck of a, of a cruise ship. 
And um, then what that does is it leaves the reader this picture in their mind that they can then sort of take that into their own imagination and see the rest of the story through their own imagination. And, um, and so it kind of gives, gives a lingering quality to the poem. Instead, you know, as a poet yourself, you know, we have this uh, sort of strong urge, I think, to wrap the poem up perfectly with a sort of ta-da ending line. And, uh, you know, sometimes it doesn't always wrap up so neatly like that, nor would you want it to. It's kind of neat to leave the reader with their own picture, I think. And, and so I really took that to heart. I went back and looked at a lot of my poems and started editing them to, to end on an image or a sound or something that would resonate for reader. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. So you take out the conclusion, yeah. if, there is, if there is one. Uh, yeah, well, there, there it is. He stands there beside her, his smile frozen. <laughs> They're in Antarctica. That's really that's sweet. Yeah. Well, how about, how about another one? This is this is great fun. I love hearing you read. Okay. Um, well, I'll move on away from my book then, okay. and um, I have um, this poem was actually appeared in the Kentucky Review last year, or almost two years ago actually. And then um, an anthology of Georgia poets from Negative Capability Press also picked it up. And, you know, sometimes you write a poem and you think it's just such a silly little poem, and then two different publishers like it, and so this is the poem. All right. um, poem that begins with a definition. A passive sentence is often composed by a passive person. It is written with a subject acted upon by a verb, sort of like being assaulted. A phantom subject is preferred by governments, corporations, and scientists. Written complaints will be read and answered in three days. It has been decided you are not eligible for benefits. The solution was heated to boiling. This idea was thought up by someone anonymous. The similes were excavated one by one like a grapefruit triangle with a serrated spoon. Then edits came about through a red pencil. This poem will be appreciated by people who don't like action or responsibility. This poem will be satisfying to few because its conclusion was eaten by the dog. <laughs> talking about talking about editing reminded me that you you do uh, business writing in your uh, non poetry world, <laughs> non poetry existence. Do you find any connection there, or is it just two different things you happen to do? They're both writing. Well, yeah, because I write a lot of um, advertising and uh, website and brochures um, where length is really important. You've got to be able to tell what you want to say in as few words as possible, especially for a headline, say in an ad or even a headline on a brochure. And um, so that taught me economy of words and summing things up in a crisp little package. <laughs> and so I think that very much applies to poetry. One of my clients recently, they had a, um, a video that was running in a continuous loop at a client appreciation party. And it really just needed, um, I forget, like maybe 10 seconds or 15 seconds or something of words. 
And I came up with an option and sent it to her and she said, oh, and this is a huge corporation. Everybody loved it, you know, and it's so hard, usually so hard to please everybody. And she said, that's because Karen's a poet, you know. So Excellent. <laughs> I could stick, you know, a complex idea into a few words. <laughs> right. Well, that's a, that's a really way, neat way to think about it, that it, it requires precision. Mm -hmm. I mean, you want the best word or the best phrase, you know, mm -hmm. that just zaps yeah. it right in there. Yeah. Cool. And I, I love editing for that, too. Just how can I get rid of as many words as possible that are unnecessary in this piece, whether it's, you know, something I've written for work or a poem. And it's kind of a fun game to see what you can get rid of without hurting anything. The meaning yeah. is still there. And, you, you know, you crossed out words here and there. So, Yeah. That's a, that's a nice editing thought, either <laughs> either kicking up the sound of a poem. I like to do that, and finding extraneous uh, extraneous things mm -hmm. to excise. So, uh, what 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 else are you gonna do for me here for us? Well, um, I have a, another poem here that's um, you know more. Practically yeah, that, all of my poems are true stories. Um, you, you I sent me that prison poem. Uh, yes. Prison uh -huh. poem. Yeah. I, the, I noticed yeah. that because I, I did a workshop in a prison once, and it's just the first time you go in is whoa, <laughs> yeah. walking through those gates and the razor wires. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as a young woman too, because this happened years ago, and it was a male prison. You know, it was pretty intimidating and scary feeling that first time, especially. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I find that I have to write true story. I'm not very good at making things up. I think I'd be a terrible fiction writer. <laughs> I have to write about things that really happened in general. So, um, so this is a true story. Um, I, the story's pretty self-explanatory in the poem, I think. So. <laughs> Teaching Mozart in Stone Mountain Prison. I didn't know what crimes they committed. Didn't want to. Those 12 guys glaring at me, wondering what I had in store. No female had taught there before, so I wore a calf-length, shapeless dress, no makeup, tortoise-shell glasses instead of contacts. Twice a week, iron gates banged behind me. Paperwork shuffled. An armed guard took me down a warren of halls. He stationed himself by my door. I needn't have worried. Soon knew, just as told, if one prisoner caused trouble, he'd be jumped by the others, grateful for the chance of a college degree. This was music appreciation. None knew the classics, but one had played William Tell Overture in band. All began to embrace opera, symphony, sonata. I think the music transported them comforted even as they struggled to study in noisy rows of bunks. One evaluation stays with me 30 years later. Thanks be to God for blessing us with Mrs. Holmes. But I felt blessed early in the semester. We arrived at Mozart Piano Concerto number 21. Their books covered just the first movement, yet I left the record playing into the second, saying, You've got to hear a bit of the andante. Muted violins conjured the ethereal melody while repeated notes in the violas mesmerized. After the pianist took 
picked up the solo for several bars, I reached out to lift the needle. Twelve students, no longer thief, mugger, murderer, sang out in unison, no, leave it on. Your lovely humanizing experience. <laughs> that reports, you know. How they could, um, so you have some kind of music background uh, if you were teaching music appreciation. Is this true? Yes, yes. I have a master's degree in music from the University of Michigan up in your neck of the woods. <laughs> and um, haven't really used it all that much. I played the French horn in the old days. And, um, but now I really find that I, I love using music references in my poetry, some of the terminology or, you know, references to what I'm listening to and, you know, while I'm doing a certain activity that I'm talking about in the poem or whatever. And, and so um, it, it does serve in my poems quite, a, you know, <laughs> certain different functions, actually. Um, and I'm glad I have that background. Yeah, so a subject matter, deep background that can float into the poems mm -hmm. at different, different times. Yeah. It's a lot of sense. So do you, do you still do any uh, teaching of music? Or is this no, just something I that really haven't happened? Don't. Yeah, I, um, sometimes I wish I could, but, you know, you kind of choose. As you go along, you have to prioritize. And music kind of became a lower priority. I mean, I always love it, and I listen to uh, classical music in my car all the time on XM radio. Um, but I, poetry's kind of taken over now as my big passion. And so if I do any teaching, it's usually poetry teaching. <laughs> and it's hard to solo on a French horn, so keeping up, keeping up with that is a little more difficult than, uh, you know, strumming your guitar or having a keyboard around the house. Yeah, and your lips are not made for playing a brass instrument, and so you oh, lose yeah. your lip. You know, you if, if I got my horn right now out to try to play, it would feel like I was playing on my teeth after about two minutes. <laughs> and you know, thought of that, but if you play the piano, your fingers are like, you know, they can be rusty, but you still use your fingers every day. You know, in intricate ways, but you don't use your lips in, in the way that you do to blow on an instrument. So they lose their Very, muscle tone and their the little, you know, the little ring that you see brass brass players have on their lip, the, the little scar—not yeah. scar, but a, a dent. Mm -hmm. Lose that, and yeah. <laughs> well, I, I can't exactly—I can sort of imagine, but I'm sure every musician knows exactly what you're talking about. When you say that, yeah. well, how about how about finishing us up here with a with another poem here? What would you like to do? Okay, well, you know, we were if I could find this real quickly on my computer, we were just talking about French horns, and I do have a French horn poem that I really enjoy reading. Let me see if I can find it really quickly. Okay, mastering the French horn. To master the French horn, you need lips of steel. Though lips were made for softer things than brass, you will call them chops and wear a permanent dent dead center on the uppermost. Learn to turn the horn end over end to dump the water, your spit, on the floor. You'll sit under a conductor's baton, waiting, waiting, waiting for your cue, then have to hit the right note a slippery proposition given the tiny mouthpiece, three valves, and 12 feet of cold, coiled tubing. Don't attend National Music Camp with braces on your teeth. 
gained 10 pounds that summer visiting the Melody Freeze, nor date the cocky first horn player. Instead, choose maybe the cute tuba or kind trombone who will end up in the Chicago Symphony. And remember, brass players make the best kissers based on informal conservatory surveys. Most importantly, have the guts to admit it was you, 16 and too excited, who honked on the quarter rest in the final movements of Beethoven's fifth. Otherwise, at 55, you'll still feel bad about whipping your head to look at the player on your right, implying she was the hack and not you. That's really good. I'm glad you read that, yeah. <laughs> glad we brought up the French horn. Well, speaking of Dorian Lux, um, her husband, Joseph Millar, is also a poet, and he also taught the same workshop. So I got both of them, which was great. Mm -hmm. And he helped me in a one-on-one -on -one session um, edit that poem a little bit. He really liked the poem, but he had a few ideas for tweaking it. And uh, so I always think of him when I read it. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of fun. It's got a lot. It's got a lot of humor in it. It's not there's one little funny part. It's got different little <laughs> pop up. You know. Well, this has been really wonderful. Thanks so much. We've been talking. This is poetry spoken here, and we've been talking with Karen Paul Holmes and listening to poems from her book Untying the Knot. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm your host, Charlie Rossiter, here to talk about a thought-provoking new book about one of the 20th century's most renowned and outspoken poets. When Allen Ginsberg died in April of 1996, he was probably the most widely recognized poet in the United States, perhaps the world. He was also a cultural icon who was an important presence where issues of social justice were discussed and debated. A new book by Elliot Katz, The Poetry and Politics of Allen Ginsberg, just published by Beatdom Books, is the first major critical work to focus on the political side of Allen's poetry. One of Katz's main contentions is that Ginsberg was a poet who wrote political poems, but who was also a political activist. That is to say, Allen not only wrote poems that addressed social issues, but he was also there on the front lines at demonstrations, marches, and protests for the major social justice issues of the day. At one time or another, Ginsburg was a part of public demonstrations around issues of nonviolence, nuclear proliferation, racism, environmentalism, gay liberation, free expression, and economic injustice. Fortunately, Katz is as much concerned with Ginsburg as a poet as he is with Ginsburg as a political activist. Katz notes that it is often the case that socially conscious poetry is not as high quality as we might hope, and as a result, it has less impact. That's what happens when a poem with an important message is written in such a didactic manner that the reader is left to wonder, where's the poetry? Limiting the poem's impact. I particularly appreciate Katz's specificity in articulating some of the tools and techniques Ginsburg used to heighten the poetic quality and resonance 
of his social observations and ideas. First, there's Ginsburg's use of clear images and observations in realistic narrative. It's the kind of thing William Carlos Williams does in his Red Wheelbarrow poem. Katz provides an example from Kaddish, in which Allen, mourning his mother's death, describes some of the fantasies and hallucinations that she had actually experienced and described to him. Only to have seen her weeping on gray tables in long wards of her universe, only to have known the weird ideas of Hitler at the door, the wires in her head, the three big sticks rammed down her back, the voices in the ceiling shrieking. Alan also used mythification, the technique of making the story he's telling more myth-like, sometimes by introducing characters from different eras, such as Moloch creature in the latter part of Howell, or the old leftists from the early 20th century who were mentioned by name in Kaddish. Such techniques allow for the present to be described, but to have that present be connected to a larger context, thus, to an extent, transcending time and becoming more myth-like. Katz elaborates on several other techniques in Ginsburg's toolkit, but I'll just talk about one more, personalization. Through personalization, Ginsburg is able to merge the personal and political. One might say Kaddish is as much a lament about his mother as it is a lament for her ideals. The personal and social become inseparable, and the poem becomes more than a son mourning his mother's death. It becomes a comment on occurrences in the wider social-political world. As a participating activist, Allen did more than show up and march. He read poems, led chants, and sometimes even helped organizers plan demonstrations. His help with organizing has played a major role in creating what demonstrations look like today. Back in 1965, in Berkeley, California, Ginsburg met with organizers planning for an event that had been threatened by Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club. Times were tense. Demonstrations were not looked on favorably by the majority of the general public. Allen's suggestion for decreasing tensions was to make the protest what he called a non-violent theatrical spectacle, so that it made a statement, but also lowered tension and anxiety for both the demonstrators and for the wider community. Specifically, he advocated that demonstrators bring along flowers and musical instruments, and even candy bars to give to the police, as well as to the Hells Angels who had threatened to beat them up. In that time, before iPhones, remember, this was 1965, Allen urged anyone who had a movie camera to bring it along in case footage was needed later for support in court cases for those who might be arrested. A quick look at the activities around the recent Occupy Wall Street movement or any recent demonstration show how many of the suggestions Allen made 50 years ago are still a part of what happens today. Elliot Katz has created an insightful and thought-provoking book
about one of the most important poets of the 20th century. A poet who, because of his activism, was also an important cultural figure of his time. I should mention that the poetry and politics of Allen Ginsberg is an update and expansion of Katz's doctoral dissertation that he completed back in the 1990s. As such, it is very well researched. For those who want to dig deeper into Allen Ginsberg's poetry, life, and times, there are 15 pages of references to works cited by Katz in the text. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and you have been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter-Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.